Hey everyone, I want to thank you for listening and supporting this show. What you're about to hear is the conclusion episode of this mini-series. So if you're starting this episode without having heard the other six interviews, I really encourage you to go back and listen to them first. I also want to say that if you've enjoyed listening and you'd like updates on future projects, you can find more information at my website, arttherapyirl.com, and on Instagram at arttherapyirl. So the format of this episode is a little different from previous episodes. I'm going to talk about the project Art Therapy IRL in real life as a whole, and I'm joined for this episode by my academic supervisor, Nicole Libyan, who has been overseeing this project for the past year. And together, we're going to unpack some of the context for this show, the highlights, the takeaways, the challenges, and ethics questions that have come up during the first season of this project. And yep, I say first season because there are plans in the works to continue this show. So stay tuned for more information on that. But for now, thank you for being here. Your listening, your witnessing are so, so appreciated. This is Art Therapy IRL in real life. I'm your host, Amelia Hutchison. Hey, Nicole, thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, And you've been such an instrumental part of this whole project. So I'm really happy that we have the chance to finally include some dialogue between us in the show. But before we dive in, can you just give us a little bit of information about yourself, who you are and what the work you do is? Sure. Uh, My name's Nicole Libyan. I'm an instructor at uh, the Kootenai Art Therapy Institute and a clinical supervisor. I'm also the research chair, and uh, so I'm overseeing uh, all the research projects that are done under Katie. I also um, have been your capstone advisor throughout this project. Uh, And anyone who's been listening to this podcast has heard me say that uh, this is a capstone project in support of graduation Mm -hmm. requirements. So what does that mean? What's a capstone project? So after uh, students have gone through the two years of training or during their training at Kootenai Art Therapy Institute, you know, there's a lot of requirements to to earn your diploma, which is a graduate level credential to be a professional art therapist in Canada. Part of that credential is doing either a thesis or a capstone project. And the thesis is more uh, focused on a a rigorous methodology where you're exploring a thesis question and, and you know, conducting your own res- qualitative research to answer that question. The capstone project is a, is a popular uh, option <laughs> that many art therapy students take. Uh, and because it's less focused on a rigorous methodology and more focused on a practical applica- application, something that's uh, hands-on, experiential, and uh, maybe contributes or highlights clinical practice or can be arts-based and creative. And it's basically gives the student a lot of creative freedom to, to design a project that meets your curiosities in this final requirement for graduation. Yeah, perfect. So simply speaking, this entire podcast has been my capstone project. This is what I'm submitting as my graduate research. Yes. 
Yes. Mm -hmm. And unique because it's the first, you're the first student to do a podcast series for your capstone. And I don't think you will be the last. (laughs) Well, so this episode is going to be a little bit different. Nicole, you as my supervisor are actually going to be asking the questions this time. So overall, we'll be discussing the project, what the learning was and what the takeaways were. You know, uh, a lot of theses and capstones will be more in the form of an academic paper, but because you are, you've done a, a podcast series with interviews, you know, staying in alignment with the, the format of your project, it seemed most appropriate to interview you to, for you to articulate your integration and uh, learning and key insights and how this is a contribution to the art therapy field from your perspective. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. So where would you like to begin? Well, I think we should start with revisiting your passion and motivation for creating this podcast. Um, You know, tell me about the title of it is Art Therapy IRL, Art Therapy in Real Life. So tell me about why a podcast for your capstone, why this topic, what uh, motivated you to to do this work? Yeah, so... I guess, I mean, this is the place where I can be transparent. This was not my plan. Um, In January of 2020, I had a really different idea for completing a thesis about mindfulness, art therapy, and how to use that to support folks experiencing grief. But then as it did for so many people, the pandemic really changed things. And I felt that there was this much more kind of urgent and relevant call to investigate how this unique moment of history is affecting the field of art therapy and how we as professionals are able to respond. And then I guess beyond that, personally, I think I was really driven to explore how we're doing this because this research also coincided with my own launch into the world of practicing therapy, right? I finished my coursework as you, as you witnessed And then at the very beginning of the pandemic, I was kind of launched into trying to practice in all this uncertainty and even some grief. I think I was holding some kind of grief about the career that I thought I was going to have. I imagined it looking really different, you know, but given the global restrictions, it wasn't possible to practice in person the way I'd been trained. So I think this topic, you know, is really relevant for anyone who finished their training around this time. So the question of this project is if and how we can adapt the delivery of art therapy for the world that we've been living in for the past year and a half. And I think I also wanted to address this shifting frontier of what we consider to be real life. The podcast has a kind of tongue-in-cheek name. IRL is an abbreviation for in real life or meaning something that happens not online. But I think the pandemic ushered in this new period where the internet actually did become our real lives. Like it's where we go to work. It's where we worship. We see our friends, where we get therapy. And the question underneath all of that for me is can therapy, which I, you know, previously have viewed as a process that required a lot of attunement and connection in person. Can that happen online? And will it still be good Uh, Can we still do this work when, when we're not in person with one another? Such a timely project, not just because of your own personal experience of graduating and becoming a professional art therapist at this time, but, you know, the fundamentals of art therapy and your training, you know, in the studio, you know, every art therapist, whether they're a new emerging art therapist or a seasoned 
you know, veteran in art therapy, these questions are relevant for everyone right now in the field. So it's a very exciting and relevant uh, research project. And I think the role of technology is incredibly, um, you know, like you're asking questions that um, we need to ask. I, I really appreciate and respect how you really stayed with your own discomfort and questions around emerging into the field at this time, because certainly one year ago, what was going through your mind was so different than I think now, which will come out in this episode. Oh, completely. I mean, I, I recorded the, uh, the intro twice. And when I listened back to the intro I recorded a year ago, I'm terrified. Like I'm, I'm obviously in a big grief process. Like I wasn't doing well. I didn't know what the answer to the question, can we do this? I didn't know what it was going to be, you know? And I think the other piece around why a podcast is that I was thinking about accessibility. I wanted to make something that would be easy to find, easy to use, something that could be a resource for other art therapists. And like, I think I also wanted to make something to raise the profile of art therapy. Yes, this is a project for art therapists, but I also wanted to make something that would be a resource to anyone who's curious about taking care of their mental health in a different way. And, you know, I also just want people to know how and why creativity is such an essential and effective tool for caring for ourselves, especially given that we're in this era of collective grief, collective trauma, social and political unrest. So, you know, my hope is that by creating a podcast instead of writing an academic paper is that I'm putting something into the world that has um, a wide reach. You know, when you're asking these questions, how can we bite art therapists at this time? Your choice was to go and interview uh, people from the field who are out there working in the field. So tell me more about that process. You know, how did you select who you were going to interview? Right. It was tough to just pick you know, a small handful of people who I thought represented you know, different ways of moving through the field. Uh, and I feel really excited about the therapists who you know, gave their time really generously and their perspective. So I guess I'll just go through one by one and describe the incredible therapists who, who participated, starting off with Kate Leppard, uh, who is the first episode. And that was absolutely on purpose because she's also the first person that I think made me feel like online art therapy was even possible. So she's an art therapist, she's a teacher, and I really see her as a leader in this move towards practicing art therapy online. So having her start the podcast off felt really important because she's holding, holding this place of possibility. And then moving forward into episode two, Rapinder Kaur, who is also an art therapist. She's a psychotherapist, speaker, and activist. And she's someone I have really admired for a long time. I've seen her speak at conferences and participated in workshops that she's offered. There was no question in my mind that her voice and perspective was going to be essential in the conversation about anti-oppressive art therapy. Including her voice felt like a really important piece there. And then for episode three, um, we have our only American art therapist, uh, a therapist named Yu Jung Sun. She's an art therapist, speaker, and a business consultant. Uh, so her work is fairly different from all the other guests. So she's an art therapist business coach that really focuses on peer-to-peer -peer mentorship and empowering new therapists to succeed online. 
And I thought that was a really important inclusion because that, that feels like a really important part of the story, right? It's not just how we're interfacing with our clients. It's how we're interfacing with this industry as a whole. And she has some really innovative perspectives on how we're doing that in the digital age. Uh, the fourth episode is Sarah West, who is a peer of mine. So she's uh, an eco art therapist. She works with the land in the context of art therapy. And it felt really important to include her voice because she's offering a really important alternative to digital therapy. She's the only interviewee as a part of this project who didn't talk about working online. And her option is outdoor therapy. So I really appreciated her perspective on ways to engage nature, especially given the climate crisis that we're facing. And then after that, uh, episode five is Marcus Scott Alexander. He's an expressive therapist, a teacher, facilitator, author. Um, and I mean, he's, he's wonderful. I know that you've also worked with him closely before, and I've been really lucky to participate in his expressive therapies workshops as a part of my training. I wanted to have him as a guest because he just brings such a sense of wonder and uh, enthusiasm to everything he does. So I was really curious about how he brings that to his digital work. And then for the final episode, uh, Virginia Jayu is also someone I've admired from afar for a really long time as a facilitator, an activist, an organizer, and she's also an expressive arts therapist. And she's just such a powerful space creator. Uh, she has this really unique and beautiful ability to create comfort and excitement. And she's just one of those people that carries herself with such attitude, confidence, conscience, that you kind of can't help but feeling invited to show up that way yourself. And so with her, I was specifically interested in her online facilitation, as well as the core of activism that runs through her work. Wow, I just love hearing you talk about each of them, you know, with such admiration and respect and really honoring the gifts that each of those interviewees have. So I, I know for me, I was very inspired by, by each interview and felt like there were really key insights that I was taking away. And so I'm curious for this next segment, if you could share a key insight from each interview. Right. So there's so many themes that ran through all of the interviews, but everyone has a little bit of a different perspective because of their niche within the field. So yeah, I'm going to say like one or two words that just stood out, I think for each. Okay. Thinking back to episode one, Kate Leopard, the words that I come away with are possibility and enthusiasm, right? If we're asking the questions, can we even do this work online? then, you know, the response from her is a resounding, absolutely. And, you know, not only is that work of online therapy possible, it can be really good and really impactful. And I just, I found her enthusiasm, her theoretical ground, her optimism. It just, it left me with such a sense of possibility. Um, and you know, on a personal note, that being the first interview that happened, I feel like that set set the tone for all the other interviews and, you know, the work I was doing alongside recording this series. So possibility and enthusiasm is what we got started off with, with Kate. I think also a big part of that, I would agree with those, in those essence. 
And I'm glad you spoke to the theoretical ground because that is something that I also really took away from that interview was her ability to root the practice in, in theory. And I feel like that's very important in clinical practice as art therapists. But, you know, I think the big piece to name with Kate Leopard is that she was working as an therapist online prior to COVID. Mm-hmm. So, you know, her, her sense of possibility and enthusiasm is because she's already feels very grounded in it. And so it, yeah, she is a leader in that way and has been teaching therapists about, about working online. So it was a really great choice to start off with her. So yes, so we're inspired. We can do this and keep being our therapist during the pandemic. Yeah. After our interview, I actually signed up for her online course. She taught a 10 week course um, for art therapists who were looking to transition their businesses online. And it was so thorough and useful. I would recommend it to anyone. Fantastic. So then interview number two. So Rapinder, I mean, one of the words has to be humility. Mm. Uh, cultural humility is, is the big theme that she shows up with and really advocates for that and, and relationality. Those are the two kind of themes that really stick out for me. But when we talk about humility, I think it's in this way that is deeper than what my previous understanding of that word was. It's a kind of humility in the sense of showing up humbly to this lifelong commitment of the work of anti-oppression and social justice. And it's commitment of listening, of being in dialogue, of challenging white supremacy you know, returning to this cornerstone of, you know, what makes the work so healing. And that's our ability to show up for one another, to be in relationship. Like that's this kind of um, most important piece of the therapeutic relationship is, you know, the relationality of it. And, you know, Rapinder even used the word love to describe that in the interview. I was so touched by how central relationship is to her work, to her activism. Cultural humility. That is, I would definitely say, that was an essence piece of that interview and working with white supremacy and all the issues that we're facing around, you know, our biases, it can be daunting, it can be intense, but there was a sense of hopefulness and like, we can do this. Like, I felt like that at the end of the interview. And I think it does come back to her commitment to love. Well, yeah. And I think it's worth naming, you know, even though at the outset, this was a podcast, is a podcast about how art therapists work online. Like the undercurrent and the other big important piece here is how we're doing this work in the wake of the social justice issues, especially the ones that are present in Canada, white supremacy, colonialism, the environmental crisis, those things being the big, the big issues that underscore the work we do. So Mm -hmm. it felt really crucial to be bringing that conversation to the forefront. Yes. Yes. Okay. Interview number three. All right. So you Jung, my words for her are authenticity and self-worth. So I think I actually came into the episode with all of my own baggage around the way we show up online as not being authentic or it being kind of this, this alternative persona And I think my takeaway from speaking with her is that we don't need to make the digital persona into an enemy. You know, what I took from her was that there is a lot of value in allowing your online presence to be the starting point of the therapeutic relationship and not being afraid to show up and use that space as a way of sharing who you are. 
you know, and I think that piece connects with the value of accessibility, right? If you're showing up and marketing yourself in a way that feels authentic, you know, that's also a way of helping people connect with a therapist. That's a really good fit, making sure people find the right care for them. I also really appreciated her warmth and encouragement around understanding your worth as a therapist. We talked pretty openly about money and, and how to do this work in a way that is personally sustainable. We need to have more conversations, I think, about that in art therapy, because anyone who's an art therapist is drawn to this work because we want to help others. And we're, we're in this caring role. And so when you attach money to that, it comes becomes... Yeah, I think we just avoid the conversation, actually. So that was an amazing episode just to listen to. Let's put this on the table and we can do this with ethically and authentically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think those things are not mutually exclusive. And like that really didn't, didn't sink in for me until having that conversation with you, Jung, that a piece of showing up for your clients in a way that is sustainable in a way where you have the energy to, to be there for them also includes supporting yourself. And a piece of that is, is the financial side. So I just, I really appreciate her perspective and just the innovative ways that she's offering peer-to-peer support. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, uh, number four, number four was Sarah West. And I just, I smile thinking of our conversation, the words that come to mind for, for her are listening and receptivity. I'm so touched by Sarah's philosophy of engagement with nature and this sense of valuing the land as an active participant in the therapeutic process and this ability to co-create space together and you know the potential that the work will extend beyond the realm of the therapeutic into the political, right? Like she's bringing nature in as a co-facilitator. She's bringing the art in as an active participant. And that works beautifully in, in the realm of therapy, but I'm, I'm so inspired by the way that she has a vision for using this work for other domains. For anyone who's listening to this episode and hasn't listened to that interview yet, I encourage you to do it while in nature because I took a walk in nature uh, listening to it and it was really beautiful to listen to the conversation. And, you know, I think what's exciting about that interview with Sarah is that if we get into this dichotomy that we're either in the studio or we're online and there's no in between, in terms of accessibility and kind of expanding our possibility of the what the art therapy studio is and working on the land with eco arts therapy and environmental arts therapy, there is so much room to in, increase accessibility uh, mm-hmm. to in art therapy interventions and programming and community-based programming. It's just Sarah is emerging into the field, but this has been this was the focus of her capstone. Again, focusing on that unique, what kind of art therapist do you want to be and bringing that in, I think that is kind of an understated aspect of the profession right now. Mm -hmm. And something to keep an eye out for therapists who are looking into that way of working is that Sarah will be offering training to therapists about how to be using a land-based methodology in seeing clients and supporting clients. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then number five was Marcus. Mm -hmm. 
Well, for Marcus, uh, the words are vitality and intimacy. With him, I am just so struck by his reflections on how he keeps this work sustainable for himself, like coming back to this theme of sustainability. And for him, it's loving the work. And I love the way he describes the difference between compassion and empathy and the role of the therapist. Uh, I love how he steps into the territory of the mystery. I love uh, that he got really clear on what it means to be intimate and that that is absolutely possible online. What is amazing about that interview and Marcus too, again, so you have somebody like Kate Leopard, who's been doing online for a while, you know, Marcus has been used to traveling around the world and his transition to just being, for my sense of dialogue and experience with him and listening to that interview is like, you know, there are so many art therapists, like he's a great example of like, okay, we got to make this work. We've got students to train, we have their, their clients to see, and just like going into it with such intentionality and the openness, like, I think this is what's so amazing about art therapists. We are inherently creative. We can always adapt. There's so much agility within us. This is the nature of why we're art therapists because we're bringing in the creative process. So it gives me such hope for the world <laughs> because I think the pandemic's actually going to put, is putting art therapy more on the map. Yeah. I think he's just such a perfect example of the way that those same creative tools that are inherently healing on a personal level become really important to navigating how to shift the way we do work. Yeah. And the piece around the burnout was so helpful because a lot of people who have been working online for the last year, this is probably the number one issue is like kind of the zoom burnout feel maybe feeling into the, the, the stress and the burnout of the job more than if, I mean, there's multiple reasons that, you know, it's not just being on zoom, but I think being on zoom for extended periods of time, it, it has been trying on therapists and everyone working. So just hit, you know, his commentary around sustaining yourself, being reachable rather than reaching out. And just, those are career long tools. I, uh, reflections. I think people could incorporate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I find I'm, I'm returning to the episode just for my own professional development. If I'm feeling like I'm on the verge of burning out or I'm feeling exhausted in my work, then I, I go and listen to Marcus again and I feel a little bit better. Oh, yeah. It's true. Every time I listen to him, I do feel better too. Okay. So number six, number six is Virginia, who is actually also a student of Marcus's as well. Um, so her words have to be action and sustainability. Like here we are back with that theme of sustainability, but I think Virginia approaches it in a slightly different way that I find really inspiring for me. She is just so alive in her presence and her passion. And what I appreciated about her were the clear frameworks that she set out for doing anti-oppressive work. Uh, Just like Rapinder, she spoke to the incredible capacity that art has to sustain hope and Mm -hmm. motivate change. And again, I say sustainability in the sense of being able to do this work for the long haul, to stay committed, to stay energized. So creativity is life-affirming. And what I took from Virginia's presence and insight is that 
the art is such a perfect tool to lean into as helpers, as organizers, as change makers, if we intend to do this work for you know a long time while taking care of ourselves. I feel like with every statement she says, there's just so much wisdom and more, much more that you can, you know, dive into. Yeah, like there's like a a real paying attention, just tuning into the complexities of humans and in particular anti-oppression, colonialism, racism. Really, I felt like listening to her gave me so much more to think about. Yeah. And, you know, I think for me, the interview became one piece of, of a lot of what I received from her over the past few months. She led a three-part workshop for the Canadian Art Therapy Association that yes. was just superb on anti-oppression. I mean, when, when we, we just went through these six interviews, it, just some key pieces. And I mean, wow, it's incredible. Like what a, a wealth of knowledge and wisdom to, to contribute to the conversation about art therapy in real life. So now that, now that you've done all these interviews, it's been a year since you conceptualized this project. And like you said at the beginning, there's a lot of fear and grief and unknown a year ago about art therapy and art therapy in real life. So now that you're a year later, how, how do you feel different since you first conceptualized the project? Yeah, I think this project was born out of fear. Um, I think the question of this research was, can we, uh, can we do this? Will it be okay? Like have, I mean, the, the question of fear underneath all of that for me was, have I just studied something that has no application in the world we're living mm -hmm. in right now? And yeah, that was a real, a really terrifying question to be faced with. And I don't feel that fear anymore um, because of these conversations with, you know, these people who are absolute leaders in, in their niche of art therapy and expressive therapies. I feel first of all, just inspired uh, and hopeful. And I think each of, of the guests on the show gave some really concrete and practical advice about how to make this work effective and beautiful in, in you know, the era that we're living in, whether that's online or outside, you know, no matter what kind of populations we're working with, I feel a sense of hope and possibility and enthusiasm and all of those words that we, that we just named before have really kind of infused my practice because of, of these dialogues that I've been so fortunate to have. Yeah. I wanted to ask a little bit more because for the last year you have been, uh, you were very uh, fortunate and deserving to get some art therapy work online right after graduation. So you, you've, been in the field, putting all your training into practice and then layering in these insights and, you know, from these conversations. So can you describe what that's been like? Yeah. I mean, I think it ended up being a really important part of the research, even though I, I didn't kind of name it directly in a lot of the interviews, but I think the process of beginning to work in this way. And I guess you know, we could even call it action research, having this direct experience of 
forming client relationships online, never having met my clients in person and, you know, seeing them for months and months and watching the change and, and the art that got made and having that to compare to, you know, what was my practicum experience at the Kootenai Art Therapy Institute. And I think, you know, what I can take away from that now is that the work is good. The work is really good. And art therapy is absolutely possible online. You know, I, I heard it in all these interviews and I have been lucky enough to experience it in my own job. So if you were to go back and like redefine art therapy in real life, like what would your definition be now? I just think real life encompasses something way bigger. I think the connections that I feel with these interviewees, I think the connections I feel with these guests, I think the connections that I feel with the clients I work with feel as real as you know the ones I'm able to forge face-to-face. I think I'm able to regulate with people um, through a screen, which was a big question. I think real life gets to include this. Um, and that's just such an exciting, exciting idea moving forward. Okay. So now whenever we do a capstone project, we need to go back and look like, did I achieve my intended outcome? Did you achieve your intended outcome? If the goal of this project was to understand how art and expressive therapists um, do their work, I wanted to get a sense of the future of our field in the context of the pandemic. I think these six therapists all gave us a unique window into the ways that we're approaching the work now. So yes, if the question is, how do we do the work of art therapy? Why do we do the work of art therapy? Um, Then yes, I think these conversations have been a really rich exploration of the possibilities. I think we can do the work. I think it's good work. And I think that was evident in these conversations. What, what, um, what challenges came up for you, if any, during this project? Um, practical challenges for sure. Um, being a person working full-time and engaging in research. Um, and then I think some of the ethical considerations that came up, you know, of course, in having conversations about social justice, we're going to run into different ethical concerns that need to come to the forefront and need to, to be a part of the dialogue. So I think the first acknowledgement is that we talked a lot about art therapy in this show and how that happens online and the accessibility that that can create. But the other side of that is that we have to acknowledge that if a person doesn't have technology, like if they don't have a phone or a laptop, good Wi-Fi, or if they don't have a private space to be in, then it's actually not accessible for them. So that's, I think, a major consideration in kind of the future of of working online is that for some people, it's not going to be possible. Yeah, or some people might not be um, even like friendly with using tech. Mm -hmm. For some people, it's just not comfortable and that's okay. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. And then I think, you know, another ethical consideration about Um, the voices that were included in these Mm -hmm. interviews, right? This was a mini series. There were six interviews. And while this season did include BIPOC and queer voices, uh, there's definitely space for deeper dialogue, specifically around experiences of Black, Indigenous, and queer folks in the context of art therapy. 
So my hope is that this project gets to continue and in a new form in the future, hopefully there's some more space created for, for different diversity of voices as we continue to have these dialogues. Yes, good, very good point. Other limitations that you feel like this, this project has? Well, I think the other ethical consideration that arose in, in these conversations was around getting clear about how certain language gets used. Mm. And specifically, I'm talking about what we mean when we talk about decolonizing in the context of therapeutic spaces. And it's a phrase that's been used on the show. Um, and up until quite recently, it's certainly been a way that I have described the processes of disrupting power differentials and bringing awareness to the colonial history um, of Canada and how that impacts the work in our field. And there's a lot of uh, written material, like academic, academic sources that talk about decolonizing education. Mm -hmm. Yes, I've spoken many times about decolonizing art therapy. Mm -hmm. yes, and, you know, and given that many of these guests, guests are, you know, working in a Canadian context, that's, that's a very current issue that we're talking about and bringing into these spaces. Um, and specifically, you know, this was a conversation that was brought forward by Virginia after our, our initial interview. She came back to me having had a shift in the way that she uses or doesn't use phrasing like decolonizing therapeutic spaces, which was really influenced by the paper by Eve Tuck and Kay Wang Yang, uh, Decolonization is Not a Metaphor, which I'll link in the show notes for anyone who's interested in that. And so, you know, our plan, um, Virginia and I, uh, was to go back and record a follow-up interview and unpack that a little bit. But then you know, Virginia was called to show up and support her community. But that said, it still feels really important to bring that conversation back into the room uh, with the awareness and the gratitude that it was Virginia who brought that forward into the forefront and shared the paper by Takin Yang and, again, gave her encouragement to kind of continue this conversation. And can you speak to any, like some, what's the core message of that paper? What do we, what do all of us who are using this language decolonizing need to, you know, why is it important to read this paper? Right. Um, I mean, maybe a good place to start is, is a quote. So from the paper, when metaphor invades decolonization, it kills the very possibility of decolonization. It recenters whiteness, it resettles theory, it extends innocence to the settler, it entertains a settler future. Decolonize, a verb, and decolonization, a noun, cannot easily be grafted onto a pre-existing discourse or framework, even if they're critical, even if they're anti-racist, even if they're justice frameworks. So the easy absorption, adoption, and transposing of decolonization is yet another form of settler appropriation. When we write about decolonization, we are not offering it as a metaphor. It's not an approximation of other experiences of oppression. Decolonization is not a swappable term for other things we want to do to improve our societies and schools. Decolonization does not have a synonym. So what comes up for you when, when you hear that? Wow, it, it, it's... Uh... It's unsettling, <laughs> lack of a better word. Well, and that's that's point. the point. Just yeah. the point. Well, I, I mean, I feel like riffing off in like the word settle, settle, unsettling, settler. Again, I, I, I feel like in this whole kind of process of becoming, I don't even have the words because I want to say decolonized and now I don't know what to say. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. And this is the whole point of this work. I guess that comes back to cultural humility. Mm -hmm. 
No, I mean, I'm back into a place of not knowing, you know, reflect on the concepts from that paper and, and have conversations about it. Yeah. You know, what comes up for me is, uh, how possible it is to forget what we're speaking about when we speak about decolonization and we're talking about land, we're talking about land and people and their lives. And, you know, my big takeaway from this and what has now really influenced the way I'm using language, you know, thank you again to Virginia is that actions or other actions towards liberation, um, that don't include the repatriation of lands are not decolonization. So again, like you were saying, it's going to take some finessing of language. I think now I'd be more likely to use phrasing like, um, decentering whiteness, disrupting power differentials, like getting really specific about what I'm actually talking about mm. when I'm using those concepts. And then, you know, also reflecting on if I am a person who is saying that I am committed to the act of decolonizing, then reminding myself that I am talking about actions that have to do with giving land back to people who it was stolen from and addressing genocide. It does remind me of a, a um, keynote speech that Wab Canoe, who's a, a politician in Manitoba, he did a keynote speech at a peace conference here in Nelson a few years ago. And he said, uh, there is no reconciliation until we get our land back. You know, he was just so kind of straight up about that. And it kind of, it put over all the other work in a little bit of perspective. Mm-hmm. or a lot of perspective yeah I mean this is it's why I love being a, a research advisor because I get to keep learning from all of you <laughs> students who bring new ideas and new research and new language back into the into the educational space in the art therapy field so thank you for that and thank you to Virginia wow mm-hmm. Yeah, I really encourage um, anyone who wants to kind of be in further dialogue, please, like if, if you have thoughts or critiques of the way we're having this discussion, please reach out and I'm going to make that paper available to anyone else who wants to continue that dialogue, especially in the context of how art therapists talk about decolonizing practice. Fantastic. Okay, so before I ask my, my final question, I think we should revisit the key insights that you took away from the six interviews. Sure. So I'm just, I'm going to read them as if it's a poem. Uh, we have possibility, enthusiasm, humility, relationality, authenticity, self-worth, listening, receptivity, vitality, intimacy, action, and sustainability. Wow. So where taking all those insights and where do we go from here? What's next? Where, where do you go? Where do art therapists go with this knowledge base that you just eloquently summarized? Well, I mean, I think it's funny that we're recording this as the world is opening back up, right? This podcast for the most part took place in a period of time when we couldn't see each other. And, you know, now we're kind of moving into this era where it's going to be shifting a little bit. Um, and maybe there is going to be the possibility of practicing in person. So I really think that for art therapists and just people who are engaged in the work of mental health, um, as recipients or, uh, practitioners, uh, what we're really taking away is first of all, this knowing that we can adapt, that we have 
the ability to pivot, that we have the resilience. So we have choice now, right? Therapists are going to have choice about how they work. I know personally, I'm going to keep working online because it's, it's been accessible to my clients. I, you know, have the ability to, to live rurally and, and stay in connection, but it also is going to mean that clients have choice. You know, perhaps someone is living in a remote community or wants a really kind of niche relationship with a therapist. I think now the possibility is that yes, we can be in person again, if that's feeling good. And we also have all of these tools that we've spent the last year and a half building that can continue to serve us in the way that they have. Where should art therapy research go next? Like what would be a follow-up project from this capstone? Oh gosh. I mean, the first thing that's coming to mind is bringing more digital tools into the art therapy studio. Uh, I'm really curious about how people are using VR technology and how that can come into the art therapy space. Um, I'm really curious about how kind of group dynamics and different therapeutic skills are unfolding online. Like I would be really curious to see somebody research, you know, the differences and similarities between an online group and an in-person group. I think there's a lot of possibility in terms of the technology that we now have access to and now have some proof of being very effective about the ways and the nuances that we can continue to to develop and um, grow into this new phase of working. And is there anything else that you want to share with your listeners about your experience of this capstone project podcast series? You know, I think I want to end with the same word I ended every episode with. I asked every guest what is giving them hope. And I am just left with this enduring sense of hope. And, you know, part of that is the fact that the world's opening up again. You know, we survived a really hard thing or, you know, and that's you know coming from a privileged place of being in North America um, and being a vaccinated person. But, you know, I think from my perspective, we can do really hard things. And I think I have this sense of hope that we can survive hard things in the future and hope that we have the ability to shift and adapt when new challenges arise. And really, I just more than ever believe in the healing capacity of creative work and just how vital that is personally and you know, in every realm, I think art is a thing that heals and saves. And, you know, that is just what I come back to over and over again. Well, congratulations, Amelia. I feel like you have, feel like I know for sure you satisfied the requirements for a capstone project at Kootenai Art Therapy Institute. And I would like to just honor that real authentic place of you staying with fear and not knowing and really big questions as the guide into this research project, because sometimes in qualitative research, we really want to go with what we know. It's, it's like a, there's like a a natural tendency to be like, I want to show what I know. And you didn't know what would happen when you opened up this, you know, the question And I remember us talking about this and I remember being excited that you were willing to stay with, uh, you know, you wanted to, you wanted to prove yourself wrong. Mm. Right. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's a great way of phrasing it. I, 
I was so afraid. And now looking back, I, I am so grateful to have had the chance to dive into the work this way. Well, and my hope is if anyone's feeling inspired by an interview that they've heard or a piece that you go take a look at the show notes, there's links to all of the, the work that the guests are doing, their books, the things they offer online. Um, there's just going to be a ton of resources to dive in and connect with those people as well. Wonderful. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Thank you. I'll just end by saying, you know, a giant thank you. I have so much appreciation for you and the work of, you know, being in this process with me for a year. We also have to thank Elijah Zimmerman, who was the second listener of this project, who just gave such beautiful, thoughtful notes and was such an important part of this process, as well as all the faculty at the Kootenai Art Therapy Institute. And of course, all the guests who gave their time and, and their insight to this project. Art Therapy IRL is a capstone project in support of graduation requirements for the Kootenai Art Therapy Institute. Special and heartfelt thanks to Monica Carpendale, Millie Cumming, Nicole Livian, Elijah Zimmerman, and Lisa Heisler. Studio space and technical support have been generously provided by the Knott family. Theme music was mixed by Mina Hebert. Project supervision by Nicole Libyan. This podcast is written and recorded on traditional unceded territory. My deepest gratitude to all ancestors and keepers of this land. Thank you.